sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You know you can always get involved in the show by sending us a note. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. But I want to start the show today, not with a letter, but with a headline and a news story. Why don't you, why don't you read that for us? Madonna sued by fans in New York over a late concert start time. <laughs> this is from the BBC. They state the show was meant to start at 10.30 Eastern on all three nights. She did a three-night stand. But in each case, it did not begin until after 10.30. 30 and it ended around one in the morning the case says they quote would not have paid these are the people who are bringing this suit against madonna these fans quote they would not have paid for tickets had they known it would finish so late the bbc has asked madonna live nation and the barclays center for comment the case brought by michael fellows and jonathan haddon states that quote many ticket goers who attended concerts on a weeknight had to get up early to go to work and or take care of their family responsibilities the next day. <laughs> these Madonna like goons, these snowflakes, <laughs> they've never been insulted by Fred Durst in a concert that gets cut short. Right? Okay, continuing on here. They are suing promoter Live Nation and the venue, the Barclays Center, for, quote, false advertising, negligent misrepresentation, and unfair and deceptive trade practices. The court papers also say Madonna, quote, has a long history of arriving and starting her concerts late, sometimes several hours late. And it cites examples including 2016's Rebel Heart Tour, 2019 and 2020's Madam X Tour, and prior tours where she continuously started her concerts over two hours late. And this isn't actually the first time someone has tried to do this specifically to Madonna. A fan sued her in 2019 and the case got dismissed. And has Madonna ever responded to this? Has she explained why she's two hours late to everything? In 2019, at some point during all of that, she tweeted a post on Instagram of her page with the statement, quote, there's something that you all need to understand, and that is that a queen is never late. <laughs> well, when you're Madonna, I guess you could do that. I Okay, I bring this up less out of interest or concern for what the hell is happening with Madonna and more because of the rich tradition this is a part of in the world of pop and rock. I mean, there are acts who have brokered in being late their entire careers as part of the reputation, and I thought it might be sort of fun to explore that, uh, sort of a fun and timely exercise for us to do today. So who's first? Uh, Guns N' Roses. Right. <laughs> right? Like, right? Is that who you think of? Yes. And, and the reason why I saw them in 87 when they were opening for Aerosmith, and they were awful. Mm. They were freaking terrible. They did do Used to Love Her, and they played something else like that wasn't released or whatever, but I had like a bootleg of it from that guy, my guy in Canada. I had a, uh -huh. like a you know. Uh -huh. One of those things. That guy needs billing on this show. It's like Brian Murdoch and the guy from Canada, because he gets mentioned almost as much as anyone else. Such a musical influence in my experience <laughs> of growing up, really. Have you ever um, tried to track him down? Like I, I, yeah. I, I, would, I would love to have him on as a guest and just be like, I, tell us everything, Fred. But you know, but you know what it was? They were terrible, and then they didn't tour for a long time, and then they started touring before. Those records came out and they were late and I never went to go see them. So you, you've never seen them other than the opening slot with Aerosmith. Mm -mm, no, wow, I didn't go because they me. were, well, it's just because I always heard how late they were and it sounded awful. And I was like, well, that's not, and I remember 
you know, what we're going to talk about maybe today is something I'm very familiar with, too. So, I mean, for sure. Ruth Blatt wrote a piece for Forbes, Forbes magazine in 2014, entitled How Being Late and Volatile Was Axl Rose's Contribution to the Guns N' Roses Brand, which I point out partly to illustrate how widespread this reputation is that we're talking about it in business magazines, but I also mention it because the chaos around this band defines them their whole existence, but a lot of what we really associate with them and their more diva-like behavior, it's actually all from one certain period of their history, and that is the Use Your Illusion Tour. Yeah, man. When you think that you're a straight OG gangster rock and roll band, what do you do? You put out two records the same day. It, it That was one of the longest rock and roll tours ever. It was two and a half years. Oh, my first. God. Oh, my God. So, so 194 shows in 27 countries. McKagan, you know, Duff, have you heard Duff's show on Sirius XM? No, is it good? On, on Ozzy's Boneyard? Yeah, it's good. You know, it's like, you, and he takes requests, and you can tell that, like, he, they're really, you know, it's like, it's not the same garden variety stuff that, that's being played on that channel or, mm-hmm. or anything else. So, uh, but anyway, so Duff did a podcast interview on the Jasta show, I guess that's how you say it, 2015, where he said this about the tour, quote, our crew is 130 people, 130 people. We had two stages going. We had an A stage and a B stage going around the world at all the times. And that's why we toured for two and a half years, because it took two and a half years to break even, just to break even on that tour. Yeah. So famously, and we'll get to this later, there's a part of this tour that involves Metallica. It's a big part of our story today. But when you read about that part, it said that <laughs> that tour was hugely profitable for Metallica, and not profitable at all for GNR. And there's lots of reasons for that, with this, of course, being some of them. But back to Use Your Illusion Tour in general. January 20th, 1991 to July 17th, 1993, to point out how long this was. And if you aren't a GNR head, let me remind you, there's a timing thing here. So these albums are supposed to come out earlier, and they it takes them a while. And so they actually start the tour before there's really anything to promote. So what they're promoting doesn't drop until September of 91, but they start the tour in January. So you've got eight months of promoting something no one has. And this creates this really unique situation where there are things that are recorded during and happen on the first eight months of this tour that actually wind up becoming part of the albums themselves. And for those of you who had, remember the the, the stuff in the liner notes, you might remember that it says, fuck you, St. Louis. And, <laughs> this, and as a fan, if you didn't know, you didn't have the internet, but like you found out what happened in St. Louis. Yeah. It's like, oh, what did St. Wow. Louis do? This, this is, of course, an overt allusion to the Rocket Queen riot. Some people call it the Riverport riot. Basically, Axel sees a guy with a video camera in the audience, and he tries to get security to shut it down, and they don't. So he goes after him. In the crowd, Axel gets sort of famous for this behavior, too, where he goes after people in the crowd physically. Then he climbs back on stage, and he says he's done performing for the evening due to how much the security at the venue sucks. And then this sets off a riot. Let me tell you people, if you do not know anything about this St. Louis riot, we could do an entire episode about the St. Louis riot. But we're going to put a pin in that, what we're going to talk about is that the needed context for understanding when a second riot happens on this freaking tour, and this is in Quebec. So St. Louis is July of 91. 
Quebec is a whole year later in August of 92, and it's during this leg of the tour where you have Metallica. Okay, and, and so we're zooming in here specifically because it's maybe the most famous instance of Guns N' Roses being very late to the stage. Loudwire writer John Weirderhorn said, to say there was a mutual lack of respect of one another's artistic aesthetics is an understatement. And what he really means is there's a whole lot of ego to contend with, right? Yeah, yeah. And we had we talked about the Black Album period and how that really was the apex um, of, of their career. And this is where we're at. If you want to put, like, there's where Metallica is. Guns N' Roses has been promoting, uh, doing a tour with a record not out yet. And meanwhile, they try to get this band Nirvana to open this tour. I think we've talked about this on the show before. Nirvana refuses. A lot of people, including our producer, Troy, I think, I'm pretty sure saw Faith No More open uh, that tour. One of the places you see this ego is in the production, right? So Metallica, of course, has lots and lots of pyro. Now, They're going to turn, turn that back for any tour. Th- this story we're embarking on here is near the top of any crazy pyro goes wrong list of stories. It's a very, very famous story. And if you want a ton of detail, there is a behind the music clip. It's labeled as such in the show notes and you can hear oh, James yeah. and the Metallica crew talk this through moment by moment. But in short, August 8th, 1992, they're at this show in Canada. Hetfield accidentally stands in the wrong place while soloing during fade to black. It's the beginning part where it's the and then it cuts to the uh, the real pretty guitar part. So it's it's not even a solo; it's like a transition between these two like early parts in the song. And when you watch the behind this music clip, if they still kept what they originally had in there, like you get to see it. Like they kept they put the clip in because they had it, and so you see like the show stop basically. Hearing the guys describe what this looked like on that behind the music clip is nauseating because they do oh, use yeah. they use the phrase toxic avenger, which oh my god. But let's be clear. This is a twelve foot high, thirty two hundred degree tower of flame. The fact that James survives this without major physical abnormalities is astounding. Yeah. And Lars goes to the mic, you know, because he's gonna be the person that's gonna try to explain what's happening to to the crowd. And keep in mind at this point. Fade to Black, if you want to be nerdy about it, is around song 11, 10 in in the set list for that tour. So it's not even, you're not even halfway really done with the the show. And so the guys promise that they're going to come back and do a makeup show. And just the clip from behind the music shows how wound up this crowd is. Because you get to watch Lars come out and talk. And like, it's so noisy when he's trying to talk to this audience. And you can hear the tension and it's a lot of people, the official count that night. And I, I feel like this number has to be slightly doctored by one or two, but the official number I saw was 54,666. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really awesome. Metallica did not tone back anything. So the set change was never quick on the, on the opening night at RFK in DC. It was at least two hours. So imagine if someone is caught unaware by that gap, they're just going to be kind of pissy before the music starts up. Like seems like it's a recipe for disaster from the first date. Yeah. So I read a lot of stuff that said it was normal. Like you just said from night to night for there to be this two hour gap. And I read that GNR insisted on being on last, even though both bands did the same length of set, but that was in more general reporting. Eventually 
I ran across some self-published pieces where people were either blogging or writing on on some third-party website about their experiences. People who claim to be sort of on the promoter side of this, and I found some really interesting information. So take this for what it's worth, but I ran across this self-published piece by this guy who has been promoting shows for decades, mostly in Indianapolis. And it seems that he worked the show at the Hoosier Dome in 1992. And he says that there are some specific things about the way this show was set up. Do you want to read from that? Yeah, his name's Steve Girardi. um, And here's what he said about the set times, what they were supposed to be. Doors are at 4 o'clock. Then Faith No More was 6 to 7. And then Metallica would play at 7.30 for two hours till 9.30. And then GNR would be 10 to midnight. So if that's, 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 the, that's what that says. That, there's no way that they ever hit that because that's a half an hour between these two massive set pieces. But if that's the correct timeline and that's what people are expecting, you throw a couple hours into that spot between Metallica and Guns, they aren't even starting until 11.30 or midnight. Right. Steve also says in this piece that originally the bands were going to rotate every other night of the tour who closed the evening. And dude, I remember that too. And then I definitely didn't want to go see guns and roses headlining the thing. I wanted to see Metallica be last, like to be honest. Right, right, right. Um, and after a couple of nights of GNR taking a while to get on stage, Metallica went to them and said, you guys always close. And Steve said on that night in Indianapolis, which was two or three weeks before Quebec, they didn't go on to 11.15 or 11.30. So they're you know an hour plus late there. So, so back to the night in question in Quebec. The crowd's riled up because they didn't get this full Metallica show. And they're freaked out. I mean, that's the other thing, right? It's traumatic. Like watching that happen and then not really being sure exactly what you saw. Pretty freaky. I mean, at the time, they really don't know if James will even pull through this. I mean, what you heard me describe the height of that and the heat of that. Like, you know you put a human in that, you're probably not normally going to come out okay. So people are freaked out. I've seen the estimate of the delay for GNR on this night to be somewhere between two and a half and three hours. So even allowing for that shortened Metallica set, it's got to be close to midnight before they come on. And so when GNR finally comes on stage, right, they need to win this crowd. And they do not do that. No, they they do not. In the years since this happened, there's been plenty of speculation. And there definitely is some context we know that people didn't really know then. One of those things is that Axel was in the midst of having some serious vocal cord issues that were plugging him and probably making it really hard to sing that night. But, you know, all the tired, hot, and drunk crowd sees is a lead singer acting like a diva, So right? Yeah, and I figure that the best way to traverse this next part of the story is to give you two versions. So version one is going to be the glommed together internet compendium version, like the general reporting that was out there. And then the second version is a firsthand account that I found from a guy named Perrin Wolfson who wrote a remembrance of this whole fiasco for the Metal Voice back in 2020 because he was there. Yeah, and so here's the general reporting version says there is a big delay. GNR comes on and they're having audio problems. They play nine songs, and Axel famously says, This is going to be the last you'll hear from us in a long time. I'm out before throwing the mic and storming off stage. And then 2,000 people go ape shit and overturn police cars, loot souvenir booths, and set fires. Yeah, I mean, there's this. like. The best show ever. <laughs> There's this famous picture of a police car that's upside down. 
Uh, you've probably seen it if you've ever looked up information about this particular show. But here's the firsthand account from Perrin. So Perrin claims he was in the stadium. The band opened with It's So Easy and All Is Forgotten. He's just sort of talking about how traumatic everything was before that. All Is Forgotten and the night will move on in epic fashion. Right? Wrong. Axel got pissy. Maybe it was his monitors, as he said. Maybe he didn't want to be there. Maybe he should have been in rehab. Maybe it was getting to him that Metallica were upstaging them night after night. But he would sing each passing song with less enthusiasm and eventually was just sitting on the drum riser, mouthing the words to Bad Obsession and not moving. Yikes. Between songs, there would be long pauses where Axel would leave the stage, seemingly having to be coaxed by crew or management to get back on stage while Slash noodled on guitar to keep the crowd engaged and unaware. Before chaos ensued, Axel said, this is going to be the last you hear of us in a long time, as you mentioned, and then they played a song, and I don't remember which one it was, and as it ended, Axel slammed down his mic and screamed, I'm out of here, and the band, puzzled, followed Axel off the stage after a few minutes, and the house lights came on. And here we go. People had waited two hours plus for a 45-minute horribly performed set, and strains of fuck you, Guns N' Roses, could be heard. People were throwing cups, they were throwing trays, etc. And then, like army ants, people started attacking the stage and the merch booths. Security could not handle the waves of angry, ripped-off, tired, hot fans looking to extract revenge, and even some small fires were starting, which was my cue to leave the building, as my friend's car was parked inside of it. So we left, parked a few blocks away, and stood across the street and watched the building and the Expo's boutique get ransacked, Cars get set on fire, and riot police arrive on buses to stop the violence. Axel had lit a hell of a match. The band were trapped in the venue for hours afterwards and apparently partied while Rome burned. And in 2017, there's this guy, Mark LePage, and he was with the Montreal Gazette, and he does this retrospective on the whole debacle. He goes as far as finding this guy, Donald Tarleton, who I think if you're from that area, you know Donald Tarleton because he had been working as a promoter. And was pretty well known. And he was supposedly working as a promoter on this particular show. He utters this sentence on the record. I remember Axel's roadie coming to get more champagne so he could get back in the pool skinny dipping with a bunch of girls. Other sources cite Metallica's road crew and guitarist Kirk Hammett as saying that Axel doesn't seem to care about the chaos that he's caused. To that point, I I didn't see this in very many places. But I did run across mention from a source or two that this could have actually been a fairly calculated move because GNR's contract supposedly promised a certain amount of time at which the obligation for them to be there was fulfilled. So typically they were coming out and doing two, two and a half, three hour sets, right? On this tour, I think with Metallica, they were doing a solid two. But in the contract, and this is fairly common with artists, you write, okay, we promise we will do at least this long. So if act of God, some sort of problem. We don't have to reschedule if we hit a certain tipping point. And the certain tipping point in this contract, supposedly, was 45 minutes. And so, this met the requirement exactly. They got right to 45 minutes. Meaning that, if this is all true, Axel could walk away and not be obligated to the venue or the promoter to do a makeup date. In contrast, Metallica, who made it over an hour and a half before the accident in their set, pledges to come back, and they do, for two shows, 
at reduced ticket prices within the next six months. And, and this is where a lot of people looking back on this get really hung up. And I, I see it, right? It, it's an interesting discussion point for us, given how much we talk about storytelling. Because with slightly altered behavior, this thing we're talking about, this episode could be about how great Guns N' Roses are slash were because of how they responded to this incident. Like, this could be the premier GNR reputation changing slash reputation saving anecdote for all time. The number one positive story. But instead, it ranks near the top of the negative stories that you hear about the band. And that promoter in Montreal described Axel's issues this way. It was his fault for throwing his microphone against the speakers and rendering his equipment useless. He had a problem with his monitors, and instead of getting a hold of a roadie to fix them, he decided to throw a temper tantrum. He ended up walking off stage. The rest of the band didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if he was coming back and headed for the corridors. Now, let's be clear. We've zoomed in on this night in Montreal, but this is not the only night that they take a long time to get on stage. And this promoter's response is pretty indicative of the lingering response to Axel in general during this user illusion period. But being trained as a journalist, I went looking for counterpoint. And I, I sort of found one in the voice of this guy, Craig Deucewald. Do you as a GNR fan, do you know that name at all? No, it was it's not familiar. So interesting cat. He was Axel's personal assistant, supposedly, on this tour. And now he has parlayed this experience into being this like marketing conference guy. Who <laughs> can you imagine? Like you and I have, have had those jobs, right? Where you end up at some marketing conference and they're like, the guy at the keynote session used to tour with Guns N' Roses. And now he's like some square in a suit and a vest, and he's like talking about how what he learned on the road with the rock band really taught him how to rock out your marketing campaign. Uh but Awesome. He so this he has written a book about working with Axel, and he has some distinctly different insights. Uh, read that quote from this guy, Craig Deuswell. Yeah, it's this is great. The myth is that they're always late, and they don't care about their audiences, their fans, because they go on late. But the reality is they do care about their fans so much that Axel wanted to put on the best show possible, and that's why sometimes he was late because he was not ready to go. At the drop of a hat, he had to prepare, and sometimes it took longer for him to get in the mindset to put on what he feels would be the best show. Now, there's a reference in that interview to a quote that Axel made in the early 90s about approaching his shows like Mike Tyson approaches a prize fight. And Hell yeah, dude. There, there's a story in the Indianapolis promoter's account we mentioned earlier that inadvertently actually works as a, a bit of a defense for Axel. It's not how he met it when he tells this story in that write-up. But it describes Axel demanding a golf cart to get to the stage, which sounds like a diva move because it's a short walk. It's only a couple of hundred feet. And he points out, though, that once they get him this golf cart, which delays the show, it's another thing that delays the start time, he then takes the golf cart to the stage, comes on the stage, and spends two hours running back and forth on that stage without stopping, practically, and it's incredibly intense, right? And this points to this idea of prep and mindset and physical preparedness. So if we're launching a defense of Axel, this is this is an exhibit for sure. And to this point, too, for everyone, there's another quote from that personal assistant. Don't get me wrong. They partied. But before a show, Axel would warm up for an hour in the shower doing vocal exercises. He would get a massage and he would get adjusted by a chiropractor. And he would tape up his ankles because he ran around so much. 
and prepared for a two and a half to three hours before a show. And then after each show, he would go back into the shower and warm down his voice for a half hour. And on top of all this, if we zoom back in on the Montreal incident with a 2024 lens, let's at least make note of the fact that this dude's mental health is in a terrible place. This is not a great time for Axel. No. In several different spots on the tour, there's a, there's, you know, there's a lot of, he's going through a lot of, you can tell he's in the shit just by like how the tour is going. I mean, right. And he's struggling with his own vocal capabilities. We've already pointed that out. He'd been on this vocal rest. They'd actually either moved or canceled some shows before this. He just watched a tour mate almost die. And he's carrying around all sorts of childhood trauma that he's never dealt with. We've talked about this on other shows. Right. So, of course, he is a train wreck. But I will say, despite any defense, sort of half-hearted defense we're giving him now, this behavior does not begin and end in Canada. This is not a one-off experience of the actual, actual train wreck. Right. Zooming in on another example, we have to mention Chile. The oh, Canadian yeah. ride is August 8th. December 2nd, GNR is in Santiago in front of 85,535 people. Damn. Axel gets wasted and arrives late. And so when they finally go on, people are pissed. They start throwing stuff early, and Axel threatens to walk out, you know, more than once. And there's footage of it, too. We have it in the show notes, uh, which is must-see TV, rock and roll fans. 178 people get arrested for being disorderly. And then after this, they go to Argentina. It's like a couple days later. And this is the site of the Axl Rose getting naked in the lobby of the Hyatt incident. I'm sure as a fan, you know this story. Yeah, and I'm sorry that I do, but yeah, I do know the story. So this is so – Use Your Illusion, man, had some had – some, some pretty fun spots. I mean, you ever seen the YouTube video of Lenny Kravitz where they, uh, he played with them in London. He like just mm-hmm. came out and they played a couple. Oh my God. It's like the, I mean, on fire, but some of the crazy shit that happened, you know, is this right, right. When you they know, were is, on is, when, to your point, when they were on, they were really on. There are moments that are fine, classic moments in rock history. And then there's moments like this. Yeah. So, uh, he's wearing a sheet around his waist and then he just drops the sheet and he hugs the security guard. So it's naked Axel hugging a security guard and everybody around him is like freaking out, laughing and clapping and whatever. Uh, and it gets on the news. And it is here, I think, where it makes sense to mention something that's pretty obvious, which is that there are a lot of drugs and alcohol destroying this band as well. If we're going to add to the list of the, the things that are making this hard physically, mentally and otherwise for everybody. I'm sure you've probably seen this quote before, but there's a later period Maxim interview that Duff does where he recalls the tour this way. Quote, every day I made sure I had a vodka bottle next to my bed when I woke up. I tried to quit drinking in 92, but started again with a vengeance after only a few weeks. I could not stop. I was too far gone. My hair began falling out in clumps. My kidneys ached when I pissed. The skin on my hands and feet cracked. I had boils on my face and my neck, and I had to wear bandages under my gloves to play bass. And oh my gosh, and you know, now like he 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 teaches financial classes. Like that's what he he figured all that out, and then he teaches other like people how to do their finances, specifically like musicians and stuff. So definitely a lot of other outside reasons to be on ego that turn GNR into such a touring flaming train wreck. Well, right? yeah, for sure. Which coming back to where we started with the story of Madonna and the late reputation she's developing led me to considering 
like who else is really known for being tardy on stage, right? GNR is the one that comes to mind. It's the main name you run across a lot. GNR and Madonna. Uh, when it comes to showing a pattern of being late, there there are bands who have been late a few times. Bieber comes up, you know. Uh, Lady Gaga comes up sometimes, but. Who else really has a pattern? Who has a reputation for this? And when I started digging around, you're going to be surprised. The name that came up the most was Lauren Hill. Yeah, who I never have seen live. No, me good. neither. She she did that. She did a reunion, not a reunion thing, but like a reemergence uh, a few years ago. And she came locally. I, I knew some people that went. I don't remember hearing any bad stories about it. Uh, always thought that would be a good show. But yeah, this is... This is the deal now. Apparently, she does not make it to the stage in a timely manner, hardly ever. Yeah, and man, I I really, really liked her. And I had a very, like a heavy experience with her because I lived in New York and I would get into a cab and I'd ask the driver, I would say, hey, can you put on Hot 97.5? And when they would, like, you'd be like, girl, you know you better watch out. (laughs) It was on Every day, it seemed like every hour, and then I would go out at night, and then that was like Lauren Hill just seemed to permeate at at that moment, that time. She owned it. She owned when when Miseducation came out. And, you know, she's probably worth a Rock and Roll Bedtime Story episode at some point because her whole story is really Mm -hmm. interesting. I mean, she never really gets a second record. And there's a lot of reasons for that that are complicated and weird. And then she puts out like a live record and it gets panned. It's like, how does your live record get panned? Like there's just, and then she sort of says, fuck you to everybody and takes off for like decades. So really interesting stuff. But what I was surprised by was how similar Lauren's explanations for this behavior, uh, they are very similar to the ones offered by Axel's personal assistant during the Use Your Illusion days. Read, Read what she wrote on Facebook when called to account for this back in 2016. I don't show up late to shows because I don't care. The challenge is aligning my energy with the time, taking something that isn't easily classified or contained, and trying to make it available for others. I don't have an on or off switch. I'm at my best when I'm open, rested, sensitive, and liberated to express myself as truthfully as possible. For every performance that I've arrived to late, there have been countless others where I performed in excess of two hours beyond what I'm contracted to do, pouring everything out on the stage. And our challenge is to figure out the best way to accommodate the vitality, spontaneity, and the spirit to make these performances worthwhile and special to begin with, while also making that experience available and accessible to others. So my question to you, through all those words, is does that explanation hold any water for you? Do you buy that? Uh, I, I think it sucks, but I, I can't disagree with I can't disagree with an artist that that was a thing. You know, well, okay, I don't so, know. I mean, he, yes, I agree with you a little bit. I see both sides of this. On one hand, I think with uh, with I keep I say this a lot on the show because this is a show about history, and we live in a different time it's 2024 and we have a different societal expectations now and mental health is a big thing that we think about talk about and we encourage each other to take care of rock stars in the 80s and 90s were not told to do that they were not expected to do that and they were criticized in a lot of ways if they did do that i think what she's talking about is taking care of herself self-care that's good i think there's probably ways to do it that don't involve you being late to your shows on a regular occasion. 
right? And, and you and I have spent careers working in and around the entertainment business. We've worked with a lot of artists. We've seen our share of stuff. I mean, I still actively produce shows several times a year where I have 30-plus musicians I'm trying to get on stage throughout an evening. There is a lot of teamwork. There's a lot of self-sacrifice that has to happen. But the key for any promoter and for any fan is for this thing to run with some semblance of a schedule. Because people, as pointed out in this lawsuit from these yahoos that are suing Madonna, people do have lives the next day. And so where is the balance that you're trying to strike between taking care of yourself and taking care of this contract that you've made with the people who have been supporting you as fans? So all that said, have you ever been to a show that ran incredibly late? You know, I can't think of one. I, and you know, I, I really can't. I can't remember going and being and waiting and waiting and waiting or doing any of that. I guess I've just always avoided it. You just and when I, you hear that an artist might be prone to that, you're just like, "That's not for me. I'm gonna I'm gonna sit this one out." But really, if you think about it, for me, like specifically, like that band is Guns and Roses. Mm-hmm. Like they're like they are the be all end all of that. The band I mean, they were they're in like, town yeah. a couple of years ago, and you didn't go. And I, I don't think I realized that. I thought I think I thought you did go, but you didn't go when no. they were here for no. for that reason because no. you were afraid they were going to be late. Yeah, and and also now like you know Axel's voice is absolutely right. it's different. It's different. Oh, so horrid. Yeah. I, mean, I have one experience with a late act, Ziggy Marley, circa two thousand two. I had just met the woman who would become my wife, and two thousand three. 2000, I don't know, 2002, 2003, we just met, and he was playing a bar in town, in this college town, and it was like a Tuesday night, and I thought, I need to see Ziggy Marley. You know, it's just one of those things, like, I don't listen to his music, but I need to see Ziggy Marley in this small venue. So we went, and it was, and I don't remember exactly how long, but this is one of the first times that my now wife and I had some disagreement that we had to work through (laughs) because you know me, I was not ready to leave regardless of how late it was getting. And she at a certain point was like, dude, how long are we giving this guy? Right. And I do think, I I don't know if we got him on stage or if we walked, watched him come out and do two songs and then we left. Maybe that was the compromise. And I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it was, I believe hours hours but we were in a in a bar in a fairly contained situation smaller crowd we were not with 86,000 people in Chile uh you know just crammed together trying to uh, stay hydrated it, it was not that situation so that, that's my only real experience that I remember with it with a long time delay I will say if Ziggy Marley came to town I would be hesitant it would it would still be a thing 20 something years later uh with my wife but I thought a fun place to end this discussion would be by hearing personal anecdotes from fans who have suffered through some sort of concert timing issue. So we reached out to our Patreon subscribers. We looked around, heard from folks who had firsthand tales. And some of these are really good. Why don't you read one of them? Well, they're more than good. These are great. So this is from Zach. Thanks, Zach, for participating in our fun segment here. We should have had a we should have had like a bumper and like a a a jingle for it or whatever. <laughs> Personal anecdotes from Patreon fans. Do, 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 do. So thanks, Zach. So this is he waited over an hour in pouring rain for little Wayne. Oh, and man. then at this point, a message popped on the screen <laughs> saying, Little 
<laughs> Little Wayne is feeling under the weather. Do you, think not- it, do you think it really said under the weather? Because every time I read this, I cracked up. I've read it like four times, and I laugh at the same spot every time. Yeah, at the same spot. At the same spot. Every It's the first time I read it, I started laughing. I forgot about how funny it is. Little Wayne is feeling under the weather and will not be able to perform. And Zach refers to it as the Little little Rain Institute. <laughs> This, one, this, so this one's from Carrie. I'm jealous of Carrie. Oh Carrie gosh, saw Frank uh, Black in the mid '90s, and he was over two hours late. I would wait two hours for Frank Black right now. If Frank Black was scheduled to come on somewhere right now, I would wait two more hours. Uh, he yeah. profusely apologized and blamed a broke down tour bus and the driver getting lost. You could tell he was frazzled and upset, but he put that energy into his music, put on a killer show, true professional. Lucky for us, the show was at a roadhouse with no curfew because he played until nearly 2 a.m., which is pretty sweet. Yeah. Wow. Oh, and Frank Black, too. This is from Lynn. Thanks so much, Lynn. Lady Gaga went to see her three times. The first one, she was over two and a half hours late. Second one, an hour and a half. Third one was an hour. The first one, they came on and said she was waiting to find out how many Grammys she was nominated for, <laughs> which is some ridiculous. Also, don't they announce that in the morning? Is that an evening thing? Anyway, go ahead. This was earlier on in her career, so I get it's a big deal, but you have an audience waiting. Put me off absolutely everything else she does. Well, I, a couple things I'd like to point out of this Lady Gaga story. First, it got better. Every time it went from two and a half to one and a half to one. But also, Lynn, you know, you fool me once, fool me twice, fool me three times. You're just, you know, it's your own fault. You keep going back. Uh, so John writes, and this uh, this one's really good, 50 Cent Concert in Norway. Uh, I have so many questions about what John was doing in Norway when he yeah. thought, you know what I should do is go see 50 Cent. Yeah. Well, John chose wisely, as as they would say in the gauntlet video game. But anyway, keep going. He said, I waited what seemed like an eternity for some warm up rappers that did a few songs. Also, if you don't go to rap shows, this is a thing I would like to just warn you about. If you decide to go see a rapper, there will just be random rappers who come up in front of that rapper. They're not on the bill. They just will rap. And you just have to be good with that. So be ready for that. After they finished, nothing happened for over an hour. And then 50 Cent came on and performed what I remember as being the worst concert I've ever been to. His last act on stage was picking girls out of the crowd to go backstage. And then he just went on partying. It was an awful experience. I have no respect for him as an artist. And I often use this as a reference for the worst night of my life. Oh, God, dude. <laughs> it's so crazy. John. You- I want to... I want to have a Zoom with John, <laughs> Lynn, Carrie, and Zach. I want to know about I just Norway. Want to hang out. I want to know about yeah. Norway. Tell me why you were in Norway. Tell me why you chose to go see Fifty Cent in Norway. So my Fifty Cent story. I've told the Fifty Cent story on this show before, haven't I? I don't know. So I don't know that I know it. So I have maybe not. I have not met Fifty Cent, but my good friend, close friend, buddy Danielle, who you know, uh, Danielle was really into shitty radio rap. She's into all sorts of rap, but we worked together for years and she really loved she really loved bad rap. So she was into 50 Cent and 50 Cent was in her town doing a bottle signing because he is the man behind FN Vodka. If you've seen that in the store, that's 50 Cent's vodka. So no she went 
a few weeks before my birthday for this bottle signing. And it was like this joke that she was going to go to a bottle signing. And then she showed up at my birthday party that year with a bottle of effing vodka, which I still have in the other room, that's like the size of my calf. Like it's so big and it has his name. His signature is scrawled on the side of it because she waited in line and won. So she had to buy one to be there. And then she won a second bottle for him to sign like in some raffle. And uh, and then she gave me the second bottle. So that is simultaneously my 50 cent story and my weirdest slash best birthday present of all time story. Uh, my signed bottle of 50 cents F and vodka. We have not opened that. I, I, I don't know if we ever will because I don't know if it's any good. But one day I'll get desperate and I'll be like, you know what, Shorty, it's your birthday. Let's let's have some vodka. I can't tell you 100% that Metallica's bourbon whiskey, whatever they like to call it, is I think it's great, excellent. Oh, I, you came in hard with the GR. I thought you were going to say gross. You think it's good? Oh yeah, yeah. I had I've had at least. I remember definitely having one one of them that was very good. I've not had that. My 40th birthday present from my mentor and friend, Tom, was a bottle of Heaven's Door, which is Bob Dylan's whiskey. Oh. And it has it comes with like lyric sheets in it. Have you seen it? I'll have to show it to you. No. It's real cool. I've not opened it either, but I mostly just like to open the box and look at the lyric sheets. I think they're, I mean, they're clearly like lithiographed or whatever but they look super freaking cool and it's a it's a nice thing to have on the bar so anyway enough about celebrity uh, spirits uh if you want to get involved in the show if you have a question for us uh please by all means we are the story guys at gmail.com let us know about that join our patreon we may reach out for you to join in and give us some feedback and tell us some stories in touch faith uh, it's patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. And, you know, just a small donation. You can grab stuff, uh, tons of stuff. Once you, once you join the Patreon, five or 10 bucks a month, you get access to everything that's in the back catalog, which is a ton of stuff at this point. It's like a year's worth of stuff. A bunch of back episodes, some old outtakes, uh, plus even recent outtakes like our conversation about Fred Durst. We had some stuff we cut for time and we put up on Patreon. So check that out. Uh, Patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Support the show and grab all sorts of fun goodies from us. Um, also, you can get involved in Instagram.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Our website is wearethestoryguys.com. You know the whole deal. And what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.